Amen. Thank you, Becca. Beautiful job. What that must have been like 30 AD, many years ago on this day when the crowd gathered and waved palm branches and yelled Hosanna. And as that song sang and said, a generation is rising up to take their place to, to sing the same praises, and we do as well. Thank you so much leading us in worship. Turn with me, Luke chapter 22. We will look at verses 14 through 20 this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. We're going through our sermon series entitled, Asking for a Friend, Questions Maybe You've Wondered But You Did Not Want to Ask, and we'll be covering some of those. Uh, All this entire series is on podcasts that you'll see uh, in your worship guide as to how to get those, but all of the sermons in this series are on there, podcasts entitled Authentic, and you'll be able to listen to all these this morning. We're observing the Lord's Supper, and that in itself raises a lot of questions. I remember whenever I was a little boy growing up in church, sitting there on Lord's Supper Sundays. First of all, when I just walked in on Lord's Supper Sunday, and I saw this up here, I got nervous. I didn't like Lord's Supper Sundays. Scared me to death. And I remember sitting there holding the juice and holding the bread as as the rest of our congregation got it, And I remember my mind wondering, what is going on? Am I actually holding Jesus' body here? Am I actually holding his blood? What if I drop it? Am I going to hell? And I remember thinking these things, and and it made me nervous. What What if I eat and drink in an unworthy manner like the Bible says, and I'm drinking and eating condemnation to myself? So I was always a little unsettled on Lord's Supper days. All the churches that I've pastored, uh, I've had many church members through the years tell me they've wondered the same questions as they're sitting there and that they didn't like the Lord's Supper Sunday either. So a lot of them just don't partake. They, they just let the elements go by. They, they don't even want to do it. They're scared of it. And so this morning, we're going to answer the question, what really happens at the Lord's Supper? Plus, we have a large number of our members here at First Baptist Church who have Roman Catholic background. And so, I'll be going through this looking at what happens during the Lord's Supper before we observe together today. Read with me verses 14 through 20 of Luke 22. When the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with them. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body. That will be a key phrase. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, let's look at our outline this morning. First of all, letter A, let's look at our text just a little more closely, Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. 
just before Jesus' death, the Bible said he sat down with his disciples and he said, I have a fervent desire to share this meal with you. Now, don't miss the phrase, a fervent desire. Jesus really wanted to do this with the disciples. Anytime you see anything repeated in Scripture, it's there for emphasis. He uses the word desire back-to-back in the original language. So he's emphasizing, I really, really wanted to share this with you. Have you ever thought Jesus really wants you to observe this? He has a fervent desire for the disciples. I want you to see in picture form what I'm doing for you. He desired that. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, said, this, divide this among you. And then he took the bread and said, this is my body, which was given for you. Then he said, do this in remembrance of, not to partake of me, do this to remember me. In remembrance of me. The cup is the new covenant in my blood. So, Jesus left for us, the church, two ordinances to observe, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances that he gave to the church because both of them powerfully show the same message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism does, the Lord's Supper does. Both of them are those pictures. Now, for years after this, in the early church, they added a third ordinance, which is foot washing. But through the years, that kind of died out, and and we were left with the two ordinances that Jesus gave, which both represented what he did for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Look at letter B on your outline. I want to look now at, at traditional Roman Catholic beliefs, traditional Roman Catholic beliefs. As I mentioned, we have many people in our congregation with a Roman Catholic background. I, I want to give their beliefs, how they observe the Lord's Supper, and then I want to give a biblical response as to why we believe as we believe and do as we do. First of all, the first question, number one, what happens at communion? What happens at communion? Now, the Lord's Supper is called three terms, uh, communion, Lord's Supper, and also called the Eucharist because the the Greek word Eucharisto means to give thanks. And so we're giving thanks today for what He has done. So anytime you see those three phrases, communion, Lord's Supper, and the Eucharist, all of them are talking about the same event, which is what we're observing here this morning. Three views as to what happens whenever we partake. The first view is known as transubstantiation. It's a Latin phrase, trans meaning across, substantiation meaning substance. So that belief is that the bread and the body, or the the bread and the wine, are actually the body and the blood of Jesus. They are actually metaphysically changed. A miracle happens. The priest holds up the wafer. The wafer is about the size of a half dollar, made of flour, wheat, and water. Some of it's gluten-free now as well. He holds it up. He breaks it. And whenever he says the magic words, this is my body, 
Those are the magic words and breaks it at that moment that bread becomes the actual body of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And the wine changes into his real blood that was shed on the cross. I mean, it's actual. How does it happen? It's a miracle. This is my body, the magic words. And, the, and they believe that whenever you partake, at that moment, it's placed on your tongue. Whenever it dissolves, grace is imparted to you at that moment. And that is your salvation. That moment, partaking, according to John 6, 53, 54, according to Roman Catholics, that is your salvation. Because Jesus becomes a part of you. There's a second view called consubstantiation. That means with the substance. And this belief, the elements do not actually become the body and blood of Jesus, but the presence of Christ is there in a special way. But the Lutherans believe this. Consubstantiation, where the presence of Christ is there in a, in a symbolic but a, a powerful way. It's more than a symbol, they say. Here's how Martin Luther described it. He said it's kind of like putting a hot poker in a fire. The fire is burning. It's not extinguished. It's still hot. You put the hot poker in there. The poker then also becomes hot. So now you have two parts that are equally hot, the fire and the poker. So therefore, you have both. And he said that's what happens to the Lord's Supper. You have the presence of Christ, and then coming alongside of it, you have the presence of Christ twice in the elements. And Lutherans believe that there's something special about Jesus. It's not his actual body and blood, but his presence is there in a special, unique way. There's a third view called symbolic presence, popularized by Ulrich Zwingli. And this view says the bread and the juice are symbols of Jesus' body and blood. They don't become his body and blood. They, his presence doesn't come alongside the elements. It's simply a picture. It's, it's a powerful symbol. But it's a symbol. Many Protestants believe that. We believe that, that what we're observing today is, is symbolic and the reason why is verse 19, Jesus said this was to be a remembrance, anamnesis. It was to be a remembrance. did not say partaking of, of him. It says, remember me. So that's, that's what we're doing. What do most Americans believe happens here outside the church? Well, according to a Gallup poll, when asked, 30% of Americans believed it actually became the body and blood of Jesus, 3 out of 10. 23% of Americans believe that it does actually become the body and blood of Jesus if you believe it. If you don't believe it, it doesn't. But if you do believe, it does. And that's almost one out of four Americans believes that. And then another 30% of Americans believes it's symbolic like we believe. So as you summarize those, more than one half of Americans, 53%, believe that it's actually the body and blood of Jesus, either if you believe it or if you don't. And only about three out of 
can believe, as do we, that it's a symbol. Go to number two on your outline, requirements to partake in communion. Requirements to partake in communion. Look at the Roman Catholics, and then we'll have a biblical response. There are six requirements to partake in the Lord's Supper if you are a Roman Catholic. Number one, first of all, you must be a Roman Catholic. You must be a part of Roman Catholicism. They believe in closed communion. We believe in open communion. For example, in other words, in just a few moments when we observe together, I will say we believe in open communion, which means that if you are not a member of our church, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus, you're welcome to participate. Roman Catholics, you're not welcome to participate if you're not Roman Catholic. Second of all, number two, you must be welcomed into the church. You must be welcomed into the church. What does that mean? Well, that means that you meet with the priest and you go through confirmation or you go through some type of of class where you're officially becoming a member of the Roman Catholic Church. Number three, you must be in what's called a state of grace. You must be in a state of grace. What does that mean? Well, it means that, that you have gone to confession You have gone to confession, you've confessed to a priest your sins, and and after that then you, you must not have committed a mortal sin. You can commit a venial sin, which is a slighter sin. That's a sin, that's a spiritual sin, gossiping or gluttony, or those are spiritual sins, those are venial sins. You can commit those, those can be forgiven, and then you're in what's called a state of grace. But then after the state of grace, you must go directly to communion. Number four, you must believe in transubstantiation. You cannot partake of communion if you do not believe that this becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. Number five, you must fast one hour before communion. At least one hour before you observe the Lord's Supper, you must fast. Now, the exceptions are, uh, if you're sick, if you're taking medicine, the priest can give you um, permission to skip the fast, or the elderly, the priest can give permission to skip the fast. Otherwise, you must fast at least one hour before the Lord's Supper. And number six, the last one is, you must not be under censure. You must not be under censure. What does that mean? That means you must not be excommunicated from the church, kicked out of the church. It also means that you cannot have committed a mortal sin. Two sins, venial and mortal. Venial means slight, spiritual sins, but not as bad. Mortal sins are worse. Adultery, murder, abuse. Those are mortal sins. You cannot commit a mortal sin and partake of communion. You can commit a venial sin. Now, how do you partake, number three? How do you partake? You approach the altar. You wait for the priest to place the wafer on your tongue. You don't reach for it. If you want him to place it in your hands and you put it in your mouth, you put your left hand over your right. The left hand is considered the clean hand in, in a, uh, Roman Catholicism, the clean hand, you put your left hand over your right, 
you hold it like this and he will place the wafer in your hand and then you transfer it directly to your mouth. You have to wait for the wafer to dissolve completely before you leave the altar. And while it's dissolving, you're thinking about what Christ has done for you on the cross. It must dissolve completely because that is where grace is imparted to you. Once it's dissolved, you start to leave. The priest says, the body of Christ, and you say, amen. You take the cup in the same way, the blood of Christ, amen. You go back to your seat and you kneel until the rest of the service is over with. Here's what you cannot do according to the Roman Catholic Church. You cannot take the wafer in your hand and roll it around in your fingers. It must go directly from your palm to your mouth. You cannot pop it into your mouth. You cannot lower with Jesus' body in your hand. You cannot lower it to your side. That's a sign of disrespect like you're carrying a suitcase. You cannot have something in your hand along with Jesus' body, such as a Kleenex or a rosary. It must be clear. You cannot give the bread to an animal. Many people will approach the altar and have a service dog or have a beloved pet with them and will give them. They want them to be a part of grace so they can go to heaven as well. And the Roman Catholic Church says you cannot do that. Nor can you bless yourself. Only the priest can bless you. Those are parameters they set up. Number four, what about the leftovers? If this actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus, you don't just throw it away, right? What do you do with it? Well, according to the bread, with the bread, if, if there's enough left over to serve next time, you place it into what's called a ciborium or a pyx, P-Y-X. And that is a container that is then placed into the entryway of the church. And, and if Jesus' body's there in the ciborium, you light a candle, and as you walk by, you bow to it because Jesus is in there. If there's not enough to put in a ciborium and serve next time, you either give it to children and let them eat it, because Jesus loved the children, or you give it to the birds, which Jesus created. When it comes to the, to the juice, when it comes to the wine or, or his blood, either the priest or an assistant to the priest will finish the rest of it, or will place it to use it again if there's a lot left to what's called a flagon. Uh, if for some reason they have to dispose of it, just a little bit left, and they're not going to drink it and they have to dispose of it, there is a special sink in the Roman Catholic Church called a piscina. It is plumbed, not with water to go down. It, it's a special plumbing that goes out to a private garden where that blood then of Jesus goes out to a sacred place and goes into the garden of the sacred place. But piscina is not used for water. It's only used for only the blood of Christ. Sometimes the Roman Catholic priest will have a handkerchief that wipes off the cup as you take it. What do you do with the handkerchief because it has the blood of Jesus on it? They will take it and bury it into a sacred place, sacred location, usually a garden. They'll bury it there because that is the blood of Jesus. Now, a biblical response, letter C. What do we believe and, and why? Letter C, a biblical response. Five statements, number one. First of all, Jesus often spoke in symbolic terms. It was not unusual at all for Jesus to speak in symbolism, and his disciples got it. They knew it was symbolic. 
Whenever he said in John 15, 1, I am the vine, they didn't think he was an actual vine. They knew it was symbolic. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door of the sheep. They, didn't, they knew he didn't mean an actual door. They knew that he meant the entryway. So many times, Jesus spoke in symbolic terms. He did the same here. Symbolic term. He didn't mean his, that is actually his body. Whenever he gave to the disciples, he's still present with them. Why would it be his body? John 6, 53 and 54, which is a big passage of Roman Catholics. As you look at that passage where Jesus said, you must partake of my body and blood, or you don't have a part of me, they believe that literally and physically. But Jesus spoke in symbolism, and whenever at the Last Supper he's physically present with them, why would they think that it was actually his real body they're holding? They got it. And they observed that later. He, he often spoke in symbolic terms. Number two, second statement. Jesus' work on the cross was final and complete. Jesus' work on the cross was final and complete. In the Old Testament, they would bring animals to sacrifice for the sins of the people. Why do we not do that today? Because Jesus once and for all, according to Hebrews 9, 25 through 28, Jesus once and for all was the ultimate sacrifice. There's no need anymore to bring sacrifices. The First Baptist Church of Garland, as far as animals go, Jesus did it once and for all. There was no need to repeat it over and over and over. There's no need for every week this to turn physically into his body and blood. There's no need. Because once and for all, Jesus' finality on the cross of what he accomplished was done. This misses the point of the New Testament teaching on the completeness and the finality of Jesus' sacrifice once and for all. So his work was final and complete. Number three. Jesus alone forgives sins. Jesus alone forgives sins. Folks, you don't have to come to me to forgive your sins. I can't forgive your sins. Only Christ. So there's no need to go to a pastor or a priest or a minister to have your sins absolved. Jesus alone forgives your sins. That's why John 8, 36, he says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He alone can forgive you. I can't. Number four. In Jesus, believers are in a state of grace. In Jesus, believers are in a state of of grace positionally, continually. Now, the Roman Catholic Church believes you go to confession, and, and quickly after confession, you go to communion because you, don't, you want to do it quickly before you fall out of grace. Folks, that is a works-based system. That is something you do. That is something you're about. You do this. You quickly go there. You do this. 
this is a works-based system. The New Testament teaches, as a sinner, if you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord by faith, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, by grace through faith, you become a believer at that moment, you're in a state of grace, and you always will be. Because it's not your works, it's His work. You're in a state of grace. So the Lord's Supper is not your salvation, folks. Receiving Jesus as Savior is your salvation. Yes, we'll sin. Yes, we must confess our sins. But we are positionally in a state of grace in Christ. His work, not my work. Number five, priesthood of the believer. Priesthood of the believer. In Roman Catholicism, your faith and spiritual life is based on the priest. You want to get to God, you go through him because he is your go-between. He is your intermediary, your mediator. But in 1 Peter, we're told that in Jesus Christ, you are your own priest before God. So you can go directly to Him without a minister, without a priest, without a pastor. I'm happy to pray for you. I'm happy to visit with you about the Bible. I'm happy to counsel with you. But in Christ, you don't need me to forgive you or bless you or pray for you or seek God for you. You can do it yourself because you don't need a go-between. Christ was your mediator. So in Christ, you have direct access to the Father. Praise God, you can go directly to Him. In 1927, there was a young Lutheran pastor by the name of Adam Carodi. You'll see his picture on the screen. He began ministering to believers along the Russia-Finland border. He would cross over into Finland, minister back to Russia, and minister back and forth, helping believers in both places. He was a Lutheran pastor. Russia began coming down hard on Christianity about this time, and three years later, in 1930, Karoti was arrested, accused of spying. He, he wasn't spying, but, and they knew he wasn't spying, but they arrested him for spying and placed him, sentenced him to 10 years in prison. So Karoti is there in prison, and he's in a cell with other inmates who were believers because they were arrested for being Christians as well, most of them from Finland. One day, they approached, the inmates approached Karoti and said, look, you're a Lutheran priest. Lead us in the Lord's Supper. And he thought, well, wait a minute. I, I can't do that. And Karoti said, all kind of reservations started going through my mind. That's not what the Lutherans believe about how the Lord, I mean, they have certain ways you do this. And they have certain, there are certain things you have to do. You don't just observe the Lord's Supper wherever you are. 
And they said, yes, lead us. We, we can. We're believers in here. We want to remember what Jesus has done for us, and, and, and we miss that. We want to observe. Lead us in that. He said, how would I even do that? And they said, well, one of them said, well, he received a, a, some, a gift from a family member. He's got a few apples and, and some bread that was sent to him. We can crush the apples in, into a mug and get the juice and all partake of the juice and get the bread and observe it. And Karodi went, oh my goodness, that's not how you do it. That's not what happens. And finally, they kept after him and he said, all right. So Karodi wrote about this later. He said, uh, we crushed up the apples into a mug and, and we broke the, the bread in pieces and we got over into the corner of a cell and we started to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I'm having all these reservations as a Lutheran. And then Karodi wrote, quote, but that day was special. The altar was but a dirty plank. And the priest, as well as the flock, we were all in filthy rags. But right there, in the corner of that cell, was the presence of Jesus in a special way. And folks, today we observe a powerful symbol. The presence of Christ is here. And as David Watson wrote, this is a meal for sinners. And that's what we remember. Let's pray together. Uh, heads bowed and eyes closed, and we're not going to have our official invitation today. If there's a decision you feel like that God is calling you to make in our counseling room after the service, our counselors will be back there. You can make that decision there. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to give us a moment to pray silently. The Bible tells us before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're to examine ourselves and examine our lives. I want to give you that opportunity to do that and confess any sins to the Lord and ask Him to, to lead you into this in a meaningful, symbolic observance of what He's done for you. And then after a moment, I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, just in the quietness of this moment, as a church body, we want to thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. Thank you, Father, that the crowd yelled, Hosanna, hail to the King of Israel, and we believe that. And we want to take their place in shouting that praise. Father, today as we remember as a church body, I pray that your presence would be here in a powerful way as we observe symbolically and we do exactly what you've commanded us to do, which is to remember you. 
God, I, I love this church and I love these people. What a joy it is as we all have gathered today to thank you and to remember. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.